My name is Tyler. My, my title here is Director of College and Young Adults, hence is why I know um, Daniel and Richard. My title at home has actually just recently changed. Um, I'm now a dad, so my wife and I have a seven-week, yeah. So I, I thought I'd show a picture. I'm, I'm biased. This was just like the winter storm. I mean, she is cute, though. I know I'm biased, but this is my excuse to show a picture. So one of the best things about being a dad, I've realized, is actually the built-in excuse that a baby is. Um, you can actually kick people out of your house, and it's not rude, because, like, the baby. Um, or you can leave a gathering early or even abruptly, because well, the baby. My wife and I, we actually went to a wedding recently, and I was literally the best man of this wedding, and I left before the send-off, and no one batted an eye, because eh, the baby. So anyway, if you don't like my uh, sermon this morning, haven't slept in weeks, what can I say, the baby? But um, I'm kidding. I, I know we're all present not to hear from me or any of our leaders, but we're present here to sit under the authority of Scripture um, and to hear from the living God. And so I'm just grateful to guide us into that listening this morning. And so, so we've been in this series called The Great Omission. We've been looking at this topic of discipleship and how that actually is something that is sometimes omitted from the life of the church. And we've been looking at how that can't be so. And that discipleship is not really an option for followers of Jesus, but being a disciple is what it means to follow Jesus. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the topic of evangelism or sharing the gospel with others. Our young adult class a couple weeks ago was talking about this idea of discipleship and disciple making found in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. And we discussed this question. Do you think discipleship includes evangelism? Do you think discipleship includes evangelism? Sometimes these topics of discipleship and evangelism, they get separated because discipleship is only for the spiritual elite and evangelism is only for those who are gifted with it, who like to share Jesus with those who are bagging their groceries, um, which is there's nothing wrong with if, if that's your thing. But what I want to say is that evangelism and discipleship are part of the same category. It, what I'm trying to say is that if being a disciple is what it means to being a Christian, um, discipleship is not for the spiritual elite. Discipleship is for everyone, which means making disciples includes making new disciples. And Paul, he was very passionate about making new disciples. And we're going to explore, uh, especially these verses 14 to 17 together to see what we can learn from Paul in regard to evangelism. And for my type A folks, we have four questions that will guide us through our time. Um, one, what is the gospel that Paul preaches? Two, why is he not ashamed of it? Three, why are we sometimes ashamed of the gospel? And lastly, how can we be like Paul? So first, what is the gospel that Paul preaches? I, I think there are sometimes some assumptions about what the gospel is and actually how it's relevant today. So I think it's important to explore. He says in verse 16, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And then he defines this more in verse 17, which I'd like to um, explore for a couple minutes. He says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And now, now what does this mean? Um, scholars talk about some different ways to think about this phrase, righteousness of God. First, they say this is speaking of God's characteristic of being righteous. Paul literally says later in um, this letter that no one is righteous except for God. They also say this is speaking of God's continuous activity of his righteousness. And that's how he relates to his people. 
And finally, they say that in this activity, this righteousness is a gift, that he achieves this righteousness for his people. If we can make up a word, he righteouses people. And theologians like, like John Stott say that in the gospel, we actually have all three. Um, we, we have God being the only righteous one, that he has always been someone who acts according to that righteousness, and that righteousness um, he achieves for his people. Okay, why does this matter? Like, like if you or your friend have never heard this before, why is God's righteousness being revealed actually good news? And I think it's good news because all humans have a salvation plan. Um, we, we need something that in a way transcends us and gives us wholeness or life. As I was thinking about this, um, this is the image that came up for me of a hamster wheel. It is a gif. It was, it was cooler when it was a gif or jif, however you say it, and it was going. But uh, may, maybe you think a hamster on a hamster wheel is cute. I think it's somewhat sad because it's like trying so hard but not actually getting anywhere. And I think this image, what happens when we keep pursuing our own ways to, to make ourselves whole or even to justify us, it's like running on a hamster wheel that never ends. And, and we might try the wheel of success or the wheel of people's approval or the wheel of money or self-realization, but every wheel is the same. We're not actually going anywhere. It's, kind of, it's somewhat of a facade, and it doesn't give us what we truly desire, which is wholeness or justification. It actually keeps us on the wheel, running aimlessly until it fails us. I think the great Taylor Swift illustrates this well. This, this is from a documentary made in 2020 that shares a lot about the course of her career. Um, a friend told me about it, not that I actually watched it. But there is this scene um, where she acknowledges her own limitations in trying to justify herself um, when her name or reputation started to be slandered. And here's what she says. I think we have this. She says, when you're living for the approval of strangers, and that is where you derive all of your joy and fulfillment, one bad thing can cause everything to crumble. When people decided I was wicked and evil and conniving and not a good person, that was the one I couldn't bounce back from. And she says this, because my whole life was centered around it. The opinion of others is what justified Taylor, and she found herself on this hamster wheel. And guess what? It works until it doesn't. And we all do this with our jobs or money or, or ourselves. Like if we just find our true self, then we'll finally be free from what the world is trying to tell us or even from what our family is trying to tell us. Or we find salvation in a relationship, like as if being alone is a curse which can be redeemed by the affection of another person. We all look for salvation somewhere. Sometimes we find it in people, in things, and a lot of times we find it in ourselves. But that kind of salvation is fragile. And it doesn't actually give us what our hearts truly desire. And now I haven't shared this with many people in this community, but I think it's appropriate um, for me to share my own struggle with this self-justification. And this is something that I've got to process a lot the past couple of years. When I was 11, my parents got divorced. And then um, ever since I, I was 12, my dad was completely out of the picture and I haven't seen him since. And so, so since I, I was 12, I actually really began this hot pursuit toward wholeness, trying to justify myself, to make things right. I, I felt rejected my, by my dad. And actually, in some way, I really was. And so I needed to protect myself from rejection. And I was willing to do whatever it took to do that. And actually, it, it can serve you pretty well. You get pretty good grades when you fear the rejection of your teachers. You can, get, um, you can become a pretty good athlete. You can get into a good school. You can do well at your job. You can be liked by a lot of people. 
And it was grades, it was people. For me, it was football that I used in a way in order to secure myself. But for me, that, that pressure, that fear of rejection, it, it was debilitating. It was a hamster wheel of perfection. And isn't it funny that we often pursue ways of salvation that will protect us from the pain that we've experienced? But it doesn't work. Um, because what I truly needed actually wasn't for my dad to approve of what I was doing to justify myself. I needed a father who approved of me and loved me despite what I was doing. And this is where the power of the gospel changed me because God invited me off this hamster wheel of perfection. And because God is righteous, because he acts righteously, he could actually make me right. And he says, you don't have to justify yourself. You don't even have the power to do that. But God does. And that's why the gospel is actually good news because Jesus took human dysfunction, cruelty, injustice, the pain we experienced, the, the rejection I experienced growing up, and he conquered that in the resurrection. And so we don't have to settle for our own personalized gospels. Crafting our own good news for our life, that's, that's a hamster wheel that's running nowhere. And Jesus, he invites us off that wheel to make us right, not because of what we do, but because of what he did on the cross. So, so I want to ask this question before we move on. What's that wheel for you? And what are, the, what are those things or, or people you're chasing after to make yourself right? And I think it's important to name that wheel because it's hard to believe in the good news of the gospel when we're really believing in our own personalized salvation plan. And so, so we see that, that Paul believed this gospel and he says this, I am not ashamed of it. So moving on to the second question, why is Paul not ashamed of this message? A couple things. First, I think it's really interesting that Paul doesn't say he's proud of the gospel. He says he's not ashamed of it. And there's a difference. I'm sure you can see this difference if someone, instead of saying, I'm a proud Texan, um, they say, I am not ashamed of being a Texan. <laughs> Completely different. Why? They're insinuating that there may be some reasons to being ashamed of, a, of being a Texan. Maybe the power grade is one. I, I don't know what those reasons would be. But I think what Paul is saying is that there might also be some reasons to be ashamed of the gospel or at least be tempted to. But why, why would Paul ever be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, in the first century, Jesus was definitely not the only person who claimed to be Lord or Savior of the world. In Rome especially, the emperor Caesar was Lord, claiming to be Savior divine and actually ruler over the whole world. So not only was Paul preaching a strange message of someone dying and being resurrected, but he was preaching a message that opposed the message of the culture. So he needed to say, despite what this message might do to my social status, my business, or literally whether people would throw him in jail or not, Paul needed to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And just to simplify things here, the main reason that Paul was ashamed of the gospel is because he actually believed it. For Paul, it was either Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord, no in-between, and he decided Jesus is Lord. The second reason, I, I think Paul, another reason he wasn't ashamed of the gospel is because how he viewed those that he spread the gospel to. This is in verse 14. Paul says this, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. This word obligated, um, some translate it as I am bound. It's most likely talking about being in debt. Paul is saying something like, I am a debtor to the Gentile community. And this is significant because there really are two ways 
of getting into debt. First, um, simply you have a friend who owes you money in this beautiful world we have. Um, We ask them to Venmo us and they can. And and if they don't, we have the passive aggressive way of Venmo requesting them and then they will pay us back. But imagine a terrible world where Venmo doesn't exist um, and you owe a friend money, but you give that money to another friend to give to that friend. You have entrusted that friend with that money And now they are indebted to your other friend. They have to give that money to that other friend. I I think Paul is talking about the latter case of debt. And he actually uses this language. This is from 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So Paul not only believes the gospel is true, but he also believes that he's been entrusted with its message and he's indebted to those who don't believe it. Isn't that beautiful? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, not because if he doesn't preach it, he won't have a job or because it will increase his social status or even because he'll just feel morally better about himself if he shares it. No, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because he's indebted to humans that are made in God's image, loved by God and who have not yet heard the good news of salvation. For Paul, he doesn't have another choice. He's been entrusted with this good news. And friends, we might be tempted like Paul to be ashamed of the gospel and That's a question we're going to turn to next, but let's just be honest. We sometimes are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, but we, like Paul, have been entrusted with the greatest news known to humankind. And we're actually indebted to those who do not yet believe it. But why are we sometimes ashamed of this gospel? Let's look at this third question together. And I I want to look at a couple of points of research um, from Barna, this big study they did in 2019 on evangelism. And I think we have some of this. Hopefully it's not too blurry Okay, if you can see at the very top, I'm going to talk about a couple of these. Christian millennials, um, so we're like mid-20s to late 30s, we're, we're asked some questions. 96% said that being a witness about Jesus is an aspect of their faith. That's great. It's awesome. The second one down, 94% said the best thing that could happen to someone is that they would come to know Christ. Almost all of these Christians said the best thing that could happen to someone is that they would come to know Christ. But I want to look at the second to bottom one, 40 Almost half of these same Christians believe that sharing their faith with with a non-Christian in hopes that they would come to know Christ is wrong. Almost half of these Christians said that sharing their faith with with someone who doesn't share the same faith with them in hope that they do is actually wrong. And and what does this mean, this dichotomy here? I think it's this pretty steady trend in our culture, something um, that the well-known philosopher Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity. Now I'll explore this just for a little bit. Here, here's what he says. The age of authenticity is the understanding that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own. And he says this as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside. And if you're saying, I don't know what you just said, I think Ellen DeGeneres summarizes this well in her uh, commencement speech. She says this in, this was back in 2009. She said, my advice to you all is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. And now I don't want to be the, um, our culture is the devil voice, because I actually think there are some positives that have come from this cultural shift. But let's think about this in regard to evangelism. The gospel message that Jesus is Lord of everything and deserves our ultimate loyalty, telling that to someone goes extremely against our cultural environment. The problem as we explore is that the gospel message exposes the reality that we're not fine. We can't actually save ourselves. But this age of authenticity, it's influenced how we tell others about the gospel because the gospel has become a subjective experience, which I have no right to impose on others. 
But ultimately, I, I, think, I don't think the gospel is a subjective experience. I think it's an, it's an objective reality. It's something that actually happened in the first century and has relevance for us today in the 21st century. And of course, this reality can be experienced, but it's not tied only to our experience. If we can just use an example to illustrate this, if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son um, that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15, um, this son rebels against his family, takes all of his inheritance, and he goes and he wastes it, but he comes back. And actually, he's received with love, grace, and forgiveness, and his dad throws a party for him. And now the older brother was very upset about this lavish grace, and he was outside pouting. I think that's a message version. And now, let's think about this scene. Just because the brother is outside not enjoying the party does not mean the party doesn't exist. The party is a reality, and the older brother has a choice to enjoy it or not. And so why are we sometimes ashamed of the gospel? I think it's because the gospel is objectively true, and it requires something of us to believe it. And some of us may be tempted to hide the gospel in this corner of personal subjectivity instead of claiming it for what it is, an objective reality that actually has weight for everyone, no matter what they believe. And so, so with all this, let's turn to this last question. How can we be like Paul then? Looking, how can, what might proclaiming the good news of the gospel look like for us? As we just talked about together, for some of us, it might mean a paradigm shift. Um, to understand the objective reality that God had a plan, Jesus is that plan, and Jesus is Lord. And that story is a reality, and it's not that we're imposing that on other people, but we're actually just inviting them to consider it. And at this point, you might be thinking, um, Tyler, this is a terrible sermon on evangelism. Like, I was kind of hoping for some tips and tricks here. Um, where's the practicality? And ultimately, I don't think evangelism is about having the right technique or training or, or knowing every um, apologetic to the Christian faith. As one pastor says, evangelization is not apologetics. Um, apologetics is apologetics. And he continues and he says, evangelism is friendship. It's saying that the gospel is the most important thing in my life and I wanna share it with you. And for our last couple of minutes together, I wanna I want explore this idea as evangelism is friendship. My wife and I were in Atlanta um, a couple weeks ago um, at, a, at a wedding, the same wedding that we had to leave early because of the baby. Um, and we somehow braved the airport and we, we made it out alive through Atlanta traffic. It can be done. And we were able to visit a friend who does ministry with refugees placed in Atlanta. Um, and we were talking to her about her experience with these refugees, a majority of whom are Muslim. And we began talking about how did she go about sharing her faith with these refugees? And she said, sometimes the language barrier is so steep that it's really difficult. So she said, I simply live life with him. And particularly for those who are Muslim, she said this, I remember that on average, it takes a Muslim five years of friendship with a Christian before converting to Christianity. Five years of friendship. That, that's a long time. Millennials and Gen Zers can't even stay in one job or city for five years before moving to Denver for a startup or something. And even with a lot of the people that we interact with, and we're not dealing with the same cultural barrier that my friend is, but I think we can learn from this. Jesus did not call us to make converts. He called us to make disciples. And let's remember who Jesus' disciples were. They were his friends. Literally, as Jesus was teaching his disciples in John 15, he says, I don't call you servants. I call you my friend. If we could go back to this hamster analogy, for, for those who trust in Jesus 
in this room. At one point, we've had family and we've had friends. We've had strangers who have become friends who invited us off of this hamster wheel of of self-salvation to experience the power of God's salvation, friendship with God where we don't have to justify or save ourselves. And so I think a better image for us is actually something found in this church. Um, we have a picture of a rose window. This is not in our church. The one on the left is just a picture to give you an idea. We have a smaller version that I took on the right. This is in Wind Chapel. It's called a rose window. And this beautiful rose window, it actually stems from another image from the Middle Ages um, called the Wheel of Fortune. I think we have that picture up there. So this image, it depicts a king on top to resemble power or fortune. On the side, it resembles someone who just lost this power or fortune, someone on the bottom who has no power or fortune, and then someone on the side grabbing for this power and fortune. And the church in the Middle Ages saw the center as Christ, where there is no going around in a circle controlled by things of this world like power, but there is steadiness and security. There is salvation at the center. And this image has become this rose window that we see in modern churches, where in ours, if we get the picture of ours up there, in ours, at the center is the lamb. And this is supposed to represent the well-ordered soul that at the center of one's life is Christ. And notice with the lamb at the center, all the other beautiful pieces are in their proper place. And see, ultimately, I think Jesus is inviting us into a friendship with him where he is at the center, putting all the other pieces of our life in the right place. And, And so if we are not first a friend of Jesus, and if that friendship isn't the most important thing in our life, it can't be the most important thing to another. And the beautiful thing is that since Christ is in us, we not only share our friendship with others, but we share Christ with others. They can actually get a glimpse of what friendship with Jesus looks like as they are friends with us. And so it's out of our grounded friendship with Jesus that we can properly see those around us, maybe going around this wheel of fortune. And actually we have the duty, we're indebted to those around us, to invite them from that wheel into a friendship with Jesus as well. If I could share a story about Richard and Daniel who read, read scripture for us. I got to know Richard um, about a year and a half ago, and we, we prayed for something in the fall of 2021. We prayed, we prayed for two things, one for Christian friends for him, and two for those Christian friends to come to church. And so over the course of the fall of 2021, Richard began to develop a friendship with Daniel, who would not really at that time identify himself as a Christian. But Daniel eventually ended up going to this on-campus ministry with Richard, and and then Daniel ended up coming to church here. Daniel, alongside Richard, actually, was baptized last spring in the sanctuary and gave his life to Christ. And, And something Daniel talks about is how his Christian friends like Richard have shown him Christ. And see, see, it was first Richard's friendship with Daniel that gave space for the spirit to transform Daniel's life for him to believe the good news of the gospel. So I leave you with this question, who are those friends for you? Um, who, who in your life might be far from Jesus? And consider not how you might convince them with the right words or debunk their beliefs, but how First, how might your friendship with Jesus continue to transform you into the kind of person who's willing to invite them into that friendship as well? Let's pray together. Lord, we we thank you that you first initiated a friendship with us. Lord, we are grateful even now as we come to the table that we remember that we are first your friend, not because of something we did to justify ourselves, but because of what you did through your son on on the cross. 
thank you for inviting us to this table where we can experience that love and grace and help us be people who share that with others, who share our friendship with you with others. In Christ's name, amen.